One week ago, on Legacy Door. And then, she was his cousin Vanessa, back at the funeral, as tall as him, and the blue deepened to the color of her sailor dress, and he was younger, in a suit, and the microphone stand was a rail-thin man in a trench coat and brimmed hat, looming over them with impossibly ancient eyes. Dan awoke with a start. I've got a big thing in the morning. Ah, what's your thing? Oh, it's my uncle's birthday party. Oh, is this the rich one or the crazy one? The rich one. Uncle Arthur. Uncle Arthur wouldn't be Arthur Dorn, would he? Um, yeah. That's him. Oh, yeah? I thought you never saw them anymore. Well, I guess it's time I did. Why'd you stop? Uh, crazy stuff. But he's not the crazy uncle. Uncle Frank is a special kind of crazy. Uncle Arthur is just the crazy all rich people are. That fits. Some billionaire on the Gold Coast just shot his daughter yesterday. Guess she brought the wrong guy home. Dan nodded. Gunshots echoed in the back of his mind, and he saw the girl on her back, hand in the air, but he shook off the nightmare image as he'd been doing all his life. Legacy Door, Episode 1.4, Encounters. Justin Brandt, 2.38 p.m. I was sitting in a police interrogation room, reading over some of the background info as they fetched Strauss from the basement. It looked like he was an even richer man than I'd realized. Board member of an energy multinational, limited partner in a bunch of property companies, and major stockholder in a long list of real estate investment corporations. It was a little surprising that this guy and his family had never appeared on my radar. Chicago has thousands of millionaires, but this guy was seriously loaded. A little cross-checking, however, gave the answer. He'd never been a corporate executive, never a chairman of the board, never a major contributor to any nonprofit, and never a party to a major legal action. He'd made some political contributions, but only the softest of soft money, always to political action committees related to the industries he invested in. He'd spent his money to make more money. And aside from sitting way in the back at some board meetings, he hadn't parlayed that money into any visible status or influence. If he hadn't fathered three children and just been arrested for killing one of them, I'd have been open to the idea that he was a fictitious persona, someone created for tax purposes. I turned to the family history. He'd gotten married at age 32 to Antoinette Folger, who was then 23, an anthropology BA still looking for that first post-college job. Seven years and three kids later, they were divorced. Double-checking the dates, I found that the few non-political charitable donations on file had been during those years, in both their names, to museums and colleges. He'd remained unmarried for the 19 years since, though there were signs of amorous activity in the form of non-cohabitation agreements with a series of young women. Each document clearly stated the signatory's non-marital aims, and that neither party would claim any financial support from the other, regardless of any gifts given, expenses paid, or oral statements to the contrary. The signatories would also keep the agreement confidential, except to defend against such a claim. The most recent was with a Serena Duvall, age 18, in July of 2010. So it looked like either that relationship had lasted seven years, or Strauss had given up, either on having such relationships or on legally regulating them. The way these contracts buried romance in legalese felt like Cal Herndon's dull style, but I had to admit that wider use of such things might be a good idea. 
Next in the file was Strauss's prenuptial agreement with Antoinette Folgier. It looked like an ironclad monster of a contract, but before I could get into the details, the door opened and my client was let in, in handcuffs. I dropped the papers, stood up, and gave him a look. Strauss was portly, but not what counts as fat these days. I'd describe his face as handsome, in a roundish way, but wasted. Not weathered, exactly. The skin over the good bones hadn't seen a lot of sun, but rather been assaulted by rich food and drink on the one hand, and expensive treatments to counteract their effects on the other. Nothing hung out of place, but the texture seemed about used up. There was nothing used up about the eyes, though. They gleamed through his rimless glasses, and he definitely had no lack of energy. While the guard was preparing to unlock the handcuffs, Strauss got ahead of him and walked right up to me. Justin Brandt, he presumed, offering both cuffed hands at once so I could shake one. I hear you're good at what you do. I have been, I replied, shaking both. The guard made eye contact with me, looking for help. I added, You should let the officer unlock you, so we can talk. Of course, said Strauss, presenting his wrists back to the uniformed man. The guard nodded at me gratefully, then removed the cuffs and departed, closing the door after himself. I pulled out a chair, and Strauss took it without thanks. This was simply what he expected. I walked around and resumed my seat. Quite a puzzle you've been given, eh? He asked me, noting my stack of papers. Every case is different, I said. I kept my demeanor tightly controlled. Not disapproving, but also not joining in on an attitude that seemed to consider the death of this man's daughter and her friend to be a big joke. I did this partly to avoid a clash in the moment, but more so one in the future. People tend to remember other people's behavior better than their own, and if Strauss discovered his paternal grief at some later time, I wouldn't want him to remember me grinning. I suppose so, he said, not pleased with my detachment. He took a moment to consider, during which his own spirits seemed to subside a bit. In this case, then, how shall we proceed? Well, my understanding is that you intend to defend yourself. Strauss nodded, the apparently irrepressible smile returning. Quite. In that case, I continued, trying not to notice. I will be notifying you of a series of pending actions, decisions, and deadlines, and giving you an outline of measures you can take regarding each one. My office will also provide any clerical support you require. Clerical support? Would that include last rites if things go badly? I let my eyes blink several times. The rich were different, and this guy was more different than most, but there was no way he misunderstood me. It must have been a joke. I gave my most understanding smile. Perhaps I should say office support. Strauss raised an eyebrow. Secretarial support? Sure. Not the term I would use, but the priority was to put this subject in the rear view. Depending on your needs, a paralegal or law clerk may sometimes help you with the more routine matters. Also, if you require any investigation to establish facts for your case, my firm will conduct it, either using our paralegals or retaining investigative services on your behalf. Detectives? Yes. Detectives. Beyond that, a great deal will depend on your legal strategy. Strauss nodded with relish. I feel impelled to tell you 
that, in my opinion, it would be very much in your interest to have me represent you in court rather than for you to represent yourself. I know, I added a little sharply, talking over his raised hand, that your previous attorney will have said the same thing and you overruled him for your own reasons, which is your right, but I just wanted to assure you that this option will remain open to you at every point in the process should your calculations change. Strauss smiled wolfishly. Thank you for your clarity, but my mind is made up. I understand. Now, in order to best advise you, I have to know the basis for your defense and have some idea of how you plan to proceed. Strauss nodded very knowingly. You will probably find my line of defense rather... novel. Oh, here we go, I thought. He continued. But before I get into it, a few questions. Of course. Now, my understanding is that although you will not be representing me in court, you are my attorney with full confidentiality? Absolutely. Yes, please. Technical questions with cut-and-dried answers. And if your representation of me were to end? Then the confidentiality would remain, permanently, except for any knowledge I might have of an imminent violent crime. Well, there should be no need to worry about that, he said, as if he had not been accused of shooting two people to death. And what is your duty in terms of things I might say in court? I will always advise you to be truthful, and otherwise to speak or not speak as best serves your defense. But what about truths I might speak which the court will not want to hear? He spoke as if he'd just descended from a plane above us mere mortals. Okay, I thought, ignore the tone. Stick to practicalities. Well, I would advise you to avoid antagonizing the court where possible— for the benefit of both your case and the orderly administration of justice? Ah, yes, justice. But if I feel it necessary to say things that are at the heart of this act? I gave a sharp look at this act. Unlike some TV lawyers, I do like to know whether my client did the things he's accused of doing. It makes it all go a lot smoother. But those words made me wonder if he had the necessary discipline about how he spoke about the case. I decided not to say anything about it right then. Let him keep talking from the heart while he was on a roll. Best to know the worst first. So I said the minimum. The judge isn't going to want his court to become a platform for any speech that is ideological or that he feels is irrelevant to the case. Well, let's assume it is ideological, but arguably very relevant. What would he do? Well, if this happened during say, the questioning of a witness, the prosecutor will object pretty quickly and the judge will sustain. At that point, as a lawyer, you're supposed to be asking questions, not testifying. Strauss nodded silently, seeing that I had more to say. That leaves your opening statement and closing argument. Here you have a lot more latitude, both by the rules and in practice. Prosecutors don't like to interrupt opening statements because it looks bad to both the judge and the jury like they're stopping the defense from speaking. And you representing yourself will probably increase this reluctance. Plus, since the opening statement precedes all the witnesses, the prosecutor would rather wait until they've presented their evidence before turning the trial into a credibility battle between you and them. 
Really, they'd rather just get the opening statements over with, most times, because the rest of the process is tilted in their favor. Mm-hmm. And the closing? More complicated. Since your closing argument will be one of the last things the jury hears, everyone will be more inclined to stop you from running away with the trial. Even with me representing myself? Still a factor, but less so. Now that you'll have already put on your case, they'll be less careful about tripping you up. So, he responded jovially, you're advising me to air my views during my opening statement? Taking for granted, here he talked over my attempt to interrupt, that I am determined to air them at some point in the trial. He'd seen what I was going to say clearly enough. I now had to process his logic in the cuckoo land where he didn't mind sabotaging his chances of walking away a free man. I came up with, It has its advantages from that point of view, but there's also the possibility of entering the speech as evidence. And how would that work? Ideally, you would find someone else who holds the same view and ask them questions to which the points of the speech would be relevant answers. If, as you say, the content of the speech is itself relevant to the case, the court should give leeway for it to come out. Interrupted, no doubt, by objections from the prosecutor, but these could probably be overruled or gotten around. Hmm. And if I wanted to give it as evidence myself? That would be a little complicated, since you'd be both attorney and witness. Some judges will let you submit your testimony as a complete narrative— so the prosecutor can object to whatever they don't like ahead of time, the judge could rule on those objections, and then you'd get to read what's left, uninterrupted. His forehead wrinkled in suspicion. But wouldn't that give the judge the opportunity to shoot down the entire thing? It would. Another option would be to write your own questions, read them, and then answer them. It looks a little odd to the jury, but then the prosecutor can only object question by question as things come up, without knowing what you're going to say. It's possible that they'd let me read the questions to you, which would decrease the oddness, but that's the judge's discretion, and if they have any reason to feel antagonized, they probably won't allow it. He nodded, then asked with a gleam, And if you were trying the case? Oh boy, that sped up my heart rate a little. Well, then I would definitely be allowed to ask the questions, but I would need to know the answers ahead of time. Strauss engaged my eyes closely. Why is that? Because there are a lot of ways that could lead to discipline against me. Hmm. And that would be a deal-breaker for you, even if there was extra money on the table for full representation? I had wondered if the promised bonuses in my contract were just the first steps in a series of devil's bargains. And here we were. Time to be very careful. Well, I did swear an oath that could pertain to this situation. I didn't mind taking the high ground here. If he fired me for abiding by court rules, I'd get that bonus for sure. If it deterred him from upping the bonus in exchange for putting me in a bad legal position, I was saving myself from temptation. And if he was absolutely determined to buy my virtue, the price might get higher the more virtuous I acted. Ah, an oath, said Strauss. Some say promises are our one connection to immortality. And some say it's children, I thought, and the police say you killed one of yours. But I tried not to let my face reflect it. A moment of silence hung there, before Strauss began again. 
It does not escape my notice that you have not asked me what it is I intend to say. I tilted my head to one side and allowed myself a small smirk. That seemed like something I might be better off not knowing. So I should not tell you? If you think there is any way in which me knowing that would improve my ability to advise you, then you should tell me. But you would rather I didn't. My duty is to make my best efforts to advise you. Within the limits of the law, my personal desires are not a priority. Strauss stuck out his index finger and pointed it upwards. Ah, but they should be. The echo of his voice hung in the air for a moment. Then he dropped his hand and added, But for now, tell me about the jury selection process. And we were back on firm ground. We ended up with Strauss making the preliminary decision to get his credo, whatever it was, out of the way in the opening statement so that he wouldn't have to be dishonest, as he put it, through the rest of the trial. I found myself very glad that I had advised him to let me try the case, and also that he had refused. He was going to be a terrible pro se defendant, but the ethical contortions of trying the case his way would drive me to drink more than I do. I appeared with him at the bail hearing later that day. He let me know ahead of time that he had no desire to make bail, and was quite content to be locked up until the trial. So that was more work I didn't have to do. I did advise him that jail can be cumulatively intolerable, as well as dangerous, but even as I said it, I had a feeling he'd already thought it all through. The prosecutor, Jill Marquez, looked so surprised at Strauss waving bail that I had a feeling she had no idea what she was in for with this case. She'd probably get a win, some good press, and maybe a boost towards the next job up the ladder, but I had a feeling she'd be earning it, just as much as I'd be earning my bonus. That done, my Saturday was my own, except for a little homework. Jaina and I had made tentative night plans to go hear her friend's band, so I dropped her a text that I'd definitely be able to make it, and did she want to do anything ahead of that? She replied that she had her own plans for earlier, but would meet me at the club. I felt a little pang at the prospect of being on my own all day, but tried to keep in mind that her being so busy was the other side of her being okay with my constantly shifting schedule. Better this than dealing with the internal and external guilt of someone waiting on me whenever I was unpredictably but unsurprisingly called into work. I went home and straightened out some of the week's mounting chaos. Senora Andrada came in to clean on Mondays, and I liked to have most of my crap out of her way if possible. Some weeks the legal grind would get so intense that I'd feel kind of helpless domestically and send her a text indicating the place would need a deep cleaning, and pay her double. Whether she stayed longer on those days or brought a helper, I don't know. Either way, things always looked a lot better afterwards. But most weeks, her visits just added some polish, and incentivized me to keep ahead of her. I gathered up some dry cleaning, something, again, that Senora would do for a fee, but this case had me a little unsettled, and nothing set me at ease like doing things I knew needed to be done. I was way too antsy to watch a movie, and I was saving up my serious drinking for the softball game and aftermath on Sunday. Besides, I like to maintain a personal relationship with the cleaners. So I bundled it up, carried it to the place around the corner, and went in, preoccupied with my various thoughts, until I noticed this girl waiting behind me, and found myself staring at her. Now this takes a little explanation. My girlfriend Jaina was very good-looking. Even better, she could look good both on the glamour scale and in an adorable granola kind of way that contrasted nicely with her fierce sense of humor. Secret, 
Type A professionals and execs don't want a girl who looks like everyone's idea of a rich guy's girlfriend. Not unless they're really insecure. There's no end of beautiful women of limited means out there studying the girls in my scene in hopes of becoming one of them. So to make a mark, a new face has to have something genuine, or what passes for it. So when I say that this girl at the laundry struck me, you should understand she was in another category from the hyper-driven women I worked with, the differently-driven women on the hunt for guys like me, and the offbeat women I tended to go after. She was straight out of a movie, and a classy movie at that, something European. She smiled in my direction as if she had somewhere better to be, but didn't mind looking at me in the meantime. Her eyes were sapphire. Her skin was somehow both pale and olive at the same time. Her dark hair was wavy and straight in different parts. Her figure, on careful display in a snug but not gratuitously tight blouse and pinstripe skirt, was toned but still curvy. Ethnicity? My betting guess was Northern European blended with Mediterranean. Greek, Jewish, Italian, maybe. But part of me wanted it to be something rarer, like Circassian or Kalash. Age? Maybe three, four years younger than me? 24, 25? Her eyes did not meet mine, but didn't avoid them, either. They gave off a sense that they took everything in, but wouldn't focus on anything until it proved worthy of study. So I was the first to shift my gaze elsewhere. Being a professional, I looked at her dirty clothes. Generally a story there. She had the whole batch in a big transparent zipper bag with a handle. The clothes in the middle were mostly just edges, showing strong colors that indicated someone used to dressing strikingly on a fairly regular basis. I could see the bottom half of a bright but not garish blue gown. The top item was a black pinstripe suit jacket, a probable mate for the skirt she was wearing. Not generally best practice washing them on different cycles or they wouldn't stay mated. Maybe it was a second set, or maybe something specific had happened to require an early clean. I moved my eyes downward. There was some off-white color near the bottom. What was that? Its right-angle corner probably meant a paper card, perhaps an invitation. I looked back up at her, this time straight at her eyes. Hers rose to meet mine at precisely that moment, questioning. The question could have been, what do you have to say? Or perhaps, why have you been staring at my clothes? I'd try to answer both. I pointed toward the probable card. You might want to take that out. She let her eyes float downwards like a ballerina relaxing her arm, then made a small, friendly smile and looked back up at me. Oh, right. Can you hold this? She took the bag off her arm and handed me the top handle. I held it high above my head, some part of me hoping she'd realize how handy it could be to have someone as tall as me around. She unzipped the side, reached her arm in with a grin like a child picking out a secret prize, and fished out the card. She used the same hand to zip the bag back up, and I had no idea whether she was deliberately or accidentally letting me see that the card was indeed an invitation to a reception at the Brazilian consulate. Been busy? I asked, returning the bag to her. Too busy to get my clothes cleaned, you mean? There was a music to her voice, but it had a Chicago clang to it. Not what I'd associate with Brazil. I gestured at the card. Just seems like you've been living the good life. Oh. <laughs> oh, that was years ago, when I was being a summer worker bee for my dad. He was always taking me places and introducing me to people. But I've been at school since then, so most of this has been sitting in a closet. Ah, 
What are you studying? Law at Drake University. It's in Iowa. She looked down, apparently finding the subject vaguely embarrassing. This was convenient because I was nodding much more vigorously than I meant to. Right, I know Drake. She looked me full in the eyes for the first time. Jesus, those eyes, they could stir up trouble. Plus, they seemed to really see things, given that she skipped the next few expected questions and asked, You're a lawyer? Yeah, Justin Brandt, attorney at law. I offered her my hand. She shook it. Vanessa Dorn, L3. So, a couple months into her last year of law school. Nice to meet you. Her fingers were like some kind of soft porcelain. It was painful to let them go. But I did, and even managed to come up with what brings you here with school in session. Job interview? The fact that she was cleaning things made this likely, but the real reason for the question was the hope that she would come work at my firm and ruin my life. Ah, uh, no. I've got a job lined up in St. Louis. I was looking in on some friends in town and then getting things clean before seeing my family up in Lake Forest tomorrow. You don't want to be the college kid who shows up with a bag of laundry? She gave me a full smile, which was a gracious gift. The teeth were, of course, perfect. Yeah, and it's my dad's birthday, so all kinds of people will be there dressed up. My brain raced to come up with a reason for her to invite me along, then disengaged. Fun was fun, but I needed better grounds than this to attempt infidelity against a good sport like Jaina. I forced myself to keep it casual. It took some effort. I hope you have a good time. She shrugged charmingly. Well, it's family. And now we were at the counter. I let her go first, then spent the next three minutes looking around idly, in the certain knowledge that if she asked me to go to the party, or anywhere, I would. But she didn't, thank God. She turned around, seemed vaguely surprised to see me still there, gave the tiniest wave with those impossible fingers, and left. As I talked to the cleaners, I promised my smitten brain that I would Google her when I got home, but only if it left me alone about her for the rest of the day. And a bargain was struck. You've been listening to Legacy Door, Episode 1.4, Encounters. John Dre was Justin Brandt. Joseph Page was Jonathan Strauss. And Stacey Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. I hope that following just one point of view in this episode upped the intensity some, as the double helix of connections between the plot lines becomes more noticeable. That's a trend which continues as we get two viewpoints on family history next week in episode 1.5, Recollections. Speaking of families, you can find family trees for all four families united by these plot machinations at our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com. Hopefully, a glance at these will make things a little clearer. And there's also a slowly growing trove of production and background info to look at, including a complete cast list. Back on this episode, the opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Sky, also by Wayne. You can hear works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana Anash. This episode's cover image is Close-Up of a Person with Blue Eyes by Alexandru Isdrobo, which starts with a Z. You can find images by him on Unsplash. If you have questions or comments about the series, we're Legacy Door Novel on Twitter and Facebook. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is an abridged version of the novel Legacy Door, available in Kindle or paperback from Amazon, 
and as an audiobook from many retailers, including Audible. It was made possible by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester. All rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye.